Hello, and welcome to the Aseret Podcast, where we learn about character, kindness, wisdom, and values from living examples of inspiring people. There is a great truth out there that the world really needs to know. Jews love food. Talmud teaches us, Ein simcha ela babasar v'yayin. There is no joy without meat and wine. Now, of course, there are some people who may not drink wine or eat meat, but that is not the point. Rather, in Judaism, this is an injunction to celebrate Shabbat and holidays with tastes and flavors and scents that bring joy to the body and soul and unity to all at the table. By making our body feel whole and satisfied, it allows our soul to bask in the sanctity of the day. When I and so many others reflect on early Sabbath memories, what stands out amidst the aura of love, family, the connection between generations, holy guests, sounds, and song, is the smell of fresh-baked challah, the warmth of chicken soup, and all of the other incredible Shabbos foods from whatever culture you come from. There is just so much more to say about this deep connection between food and Jewish spirituality. So I want to invite you to join my conversation with Nancy Weisbrod about her relationship with the fourth Deber of Shabbat and food. Wife, mother, and grandmother, Nancy is the founding president and board member of the Village Shul Asia Torah Learning Center in Toronto. She's also the Project Aseret Ambassador, creating the Wave Workshop, which is known as Wisdom of the Seret Values Education. Most importantly for our conversation, she's a kosher cooking teacher, umami sushi founder, Cordon Bleu graduate, and has been teaching and sharing delicious, simple, and health-giving meals for over four decades. This conversation was super heartfelt, lighthearted, and yet full of depth and meaning. It was a true pleasure to learn from her about the intimate relationship between Judaism and food, and I think you will feel the same. Okay, Nancy Weisbrod, thank you so much for coming to speak with me and with all of us on the Aseret Movement podcast. Thank you, Noah. Very exciting. So have you been interviewed before for a podcast? No, I have not. This is my first one. Okay, great. So we're so thankful to have you. I'm going to just read a little bit of the Deber that we're going to be talking about amongst many things. And just tell me a little bit what comes to mind for you right now. Zachor et Yom HaShabbat Lekodsho. Remember Shabbat, the day of Shabbat, to, to make it holy. Do work for six days, get it all done. The seventh day is a Sabbath for, for God. And I'll just go to the end. And God rested on the seventh day. So what, what's coming to mind for you today when you think about the Deber of Shabbat? Well, the first thing is, and maybe we can get into this a little bit later, is I remember when Rep. Shalom Schwartz began teaching the Aseret as our core values. When Rav Shalom got to this fourth Deber, he said, if I heard him correctly, that this is the Deber that can unlock, unlock all the others. Very, very powerful. So that stayed with me. And I'm curious, maybe later on, you can share why you think, because you're a student of the Aseret as well, Rav Shalom might have said that, but for me, what immediately comes to mind is the iteration of the Deber that you read that begins with Zahor, remember, because we know it begins with another word in the second place. So when you remember something, 
That means you have to have had experience with it. You could remember it just from being taught something, but to really remember for it to have resonance, I believe you have to have a firm, hands-on experience of it. So if you were in my dining room, hopefully, maybe one day you will, um, by my candles is a photograph that was taken by the Toronto Sun in 1993 and then they had written an article and it was called deliverance and they were interviewing families before Pesach and they approached Aish and Aish suggested they speak with Stephen and I and um, they sent a photographer and the photographer asked us to pretend that we were lighting Shabbos candles and it was the week before Pesach as well or a few days before and the picture shows me with a piece of lace with my head covered, Stephen holding the baby, and our other children just, you know, they were young, very young, looking at the Shabbos candles and the look at on their faces. So Mendy was three, Max was five, Sam was six, and Sarah was eight to me is what comes to mind when I hear that to bear. And the candles that I light were my mother's Shabbos candles. So the word Zahor, when you brought this up, you brought back a memory. And in that memory, family is the undercurrent of all that. You mentioned your kids being there for that moment. And you mentioned the Shabbos candles being your mom. So tell me a little bit about what Shabbos means to you. Maybe we can start all the way back to the first memory you have of, of Shabbat. Maybe something comes to mind at a young age for you. Wow. I grew up with a very, I was always attracted to things Jewish. We, our family were members of Holy Blossom. I went to Sunday school there. I eventually was a Sunday school teacher and it felt very important for me going to we called it Sunday school, right? Like it wasn't, I didn't go to Hebrew school because I wasn't preparing to have a bar mitzvah. So my parents decided that and I, okay. But the earliest memories of Shabbat, not on Shabbat, were sitting in the music room with the teacher playing piano and passing out the little Dixie cups of grape juice and squares of challah. So that memory, I don't know if you've had this experience, Noah. Everything that goes into us is there, I believe, waiting to be activated and lit up. And when it first became apparent to me how important and vital, vital Shabbos was for transmitting Yiddishkeit to my family, all those early memories that didn't have anything to latch on to, all of a sudden, like, yeah, that's what it was. So when I sit at my Shabbos table now and Stephen makes Kiddush and I have that first sip of grape juice, I'm back to a five-year-old child sitting cross-legged on the floor. So the Shabbos has the potential to unify all the experiences within our life to bring it to a deeper understanding, experience, and hopefully practice. Do you like, does that Yeah, resonate? I see that a hundred percent. My memories are 
and and thank God we still get to go there sometimes is my grandparents, we had massive Shabbat dinners. We had, um, and the songs that we sing, the blessings that we made in the tunes and the smells, it's, it, it, you eat it, you digest it, <laughs> you digest it. And those early experiences you carry with you and they bring the flavor, the ta'am of, of Shabbat as you go forward. So I can definitely relate. And I can also relate to those square little pieces of challah um, <laughs> and the bim bombs and everything. It's just, it's, they, they, they imprint themselves on you. But when I asked you about your first memory of Shabbat, you said again, well, not again, because I know the backstory of this that we're going to get to. You mentioned food. <laughs> you talked about Kiddush and challah. So I want to tie that all together and ask you, I want to hear about your relationship with food and how it comes to Shabbat. But you mentioned that Shabbat's carried you and, and you also said that Rav Shalom brought up how central this is for everything else. How has Shabbat carried your Yiddishkeit throughout all the years? What has it meant to you and how has it impacted you? Wow, that's an amazing question. So when I first started learning about Shabbat, when Rav Shalom had come back to Toronto with Debbie and was teaching, we had home study groups, I was in 100%. And How? What happened? Did you read Rav, did you read of Noah Weinberg? Because let, this is important to hear that because Nancy, first president of the village shul, big shul in Toronto, uh, big impact. Where does Rav Noah come in? Rav Noah Weinberg, Rav Shalom, tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so I have to be very honest with you and say that I didn't really know um, Rav Noah. I related to Rav Shalom, who was. Sandy Freiberg, we host, and Earl Gorman hosted our first home study groups. So um, I was pregnant with Sarah and our oldest, and it occurred to me that I did not feel equipped to be able to pass on Yiddishkeit that I valued so much. I didn't have the words, the behavior, the understanding. So Shalom taught the Parsha Lech Lecha. That was our first home group. And with that, that was it. That was a tour speaking to me in Earl Gorman's living room in 1985. What was it? What happened? What could you verbalize what happened? It was it was the the Pasuk that you go. It was just the words, Lech Lecha. And the sincerity with which Rav Shalom gave it over, sincerity and humility. I'm sorry if I'm embarrassing Rav Shalom, forgive me. But as well, my father, Shalom, who passed away when I was 18 years old, knew Rav Shalom's grandparents, grandparents, did business with them. So when you have a connection like that with my dear father, who passed way too early in my life, I'm paying attention. So it was that personal connection. Thank God, Rav Weinberg laid the seeds and did all the work and the Burmans for bringing them, you know, the five families over financially and the Heckers for stepping up and doing what they did. But it was very personal for me. And I hadn't seen a Shabbat table at that point. I don't think like we were hosted by some of the rabbis that had come. So that was the way that my attention was focused. Wow. And we were we were getting into that because you were going to talk about 
how it's carried you. Right. How so it's let, let's me. tie let's tie that together for you a little bit. What yeah. I wanted to say was when I first started studying, I think, oh my gosh, like there's so much you gotta do. And there's so much you can't do. It's like uh, I never really felt like I can't do this because it just got me and spoke to me. But when I heard that the most important holiday, and as we learn through, we understand why the Archazel say that, in my opinion, anyway, one of the most important, comes every week. So, you know, it's kind of like you're either going to be coming into it like a mess, anxious, overwrought, regretting everything that you can't do, or you're going to realize, oh, no, there's a reason that I'm coming into this every week. Like it had to be a reframe. So that's really what got me. And you couldn't find, like, we sent our kids to what's now um, RHS, Robbins Hebrew Academy, in the day it was USDS. And they were learning about Shabbat, and they were learning about all the Yiddishkeit, and they had wonderful teachers, wonderful. But Stephen and I were staying one step ahead of them in, oh, yeah, like, that's something that maybe we shouldn't be doing. So it was gradual. It came from within. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention Rev Zale Newman, one of your early interviewees, because it was through Uncle Moishi that I learned about Shabbos and keeping kosher, like singing those songs and hearing the kids sing them and see their excitement. And we can talk a little bit about the smells and the home pre-Shabbos and the food preparation, knowing they're going to have their friends coming over and all the guests. It was just a great party coming around every week. And more than that, of course, but that came later. So it's a family affair, this Shabbat, and that is in consonance with what it says in the Deber, which is to not work, you with your children and your workers and everybody in your gates. So this was this was a family experience. Um, first of all, wow. Uh, it's, it's, you know, you, it's a big, it sounds like there was a subtle transition there, but maybe being that it's so often, I think why Shabbat is probably so powerful is because it anchors you in a different relationship with time. So if Shabbat is not a center part of your life, maybe then you're more in, in secular time, let's say, which there's nothing wrong with secular time per se, but you know, we talk about time and space as being so fundamental to reality. Um, you've just mentioned the space. It was like a party. There was a home that the Sabbath was taking place in, which was a qualitative experience, but there's also the experience of time and what's more fundamental than time and space being sanctified and elevated. That's the world. The world is changed because you do this Shabbat. So it sounds like that's maybe part of the experience that, that you were able to create in your home. Thank God. Thank God, with the help of the rabbis and the teachers and the amazing community. And because at the very beginning of the village shul, many people were attracted to what we were doing because like it resonated for me, it resonated for them. And nobody had to tell you this is good. You knew it was good. 
And many of us came from families who maybe didn't share that. So we were looking to create a family within so that we could share and grow and take care of each other in this way, which we did big time, like sending food for Shabbos. There was a simcha or there was a, you know, an illness, maybe somebody moved, somebody came to the neighborhood. Shabbos was a central focus, but you, you put me in mind of something that was a story that I was put into the wave workbook. And that was the Sabbath is the. Tell us what the the wave workbook is while, while you're at it too. Okay. Here, here goes the plug wave workbook, wave workshop. After Rav Shalom came and agreed to teach a group of women at the village shul, the Aseret Antibrot as our core values, because he was teaching them in Israel to the kids who, you know, in grades five, six, pre-bar and bar mitzvah. And we got a taste of it. We said, oh my gosh, you got to teach this to us. So Rav Shalom committed to teaching 14 sessions. And based on those sessions, I made a workbook and we continued learning on the WAVE workshop several times at the Village Shul. WAVE stands, it did stand for Women's Aseric Values Education. Thank you, Shira Schwartz. And we taught women's workshops along with Ariela Ebenezra and we had them in our homes. Now I'm seeing that and some of my favorite learning came with men and women. So if Rav Shalom like, thinks it's a good idea, maybe we can make it the wisdom of the Aseric Values Education. But still be wave. It'd still be wave. Right? A non-gendered version. Exactly. Exactly. So it was a 14-part it, it workshop, and it's a book that I can talk about it now a little bit if you like, but I do want to share a story before I forget it. Sure. So one of the teachings that's given over in the wave workshop is Shabbos or Shabbat, it's the seventh day. We all know that. And seventh now, um, I believe this teaching is from Rabbi Arya Kaplan. We understand that if you think of a cube or enlarge it into a room, 10 foot or 10 meter room by 10 meters. So you've got the four sides and you've got the ceiling and you've got the floor. And that's the room. But a room devoid of the seven doesn't give it a purpose or a function. If the seven is the intention for what that room is meant to be used for, a child's bedroom, a dining room where we all gather and we share words of Torah, Racha said over delicious food, you said songs, being all together. That seven is the experience of Shabbos. Because it imbues the physicality, the space you spoke about, and the time, the seventh day, with an experience that could only be made holy by the Almighty. And I, I'm not saying that. I, others have said that. The seventh is the unseen. It's the, so there's the, like a cube kind of. And then yep. the seventh is just the space, the empty space that permeates it. I guess that would be one way to describe it. It could be the unseen. The, like I, like 
we know that in the world of nature, vacuums don't exist. Uh So they either get filled with something that we want to fill them with or something that comes to us, whether we want it or not. So empty is good. Like, what do you mean when you say empty? No, just it's the intangible. It's it's beyond the physical space. Yeah, I really, I really like that idea. So, so you just in terms of, and I want to, I want to um, transition a little bit for you. We've talked a little bit about your relationship with Shabbat. We've talked about it as a historical experience, a communal experience a little bit. I want to ask you about this idea that we have in Chazal. We say, Ein simcha, there's no simcha without meat and wine. And of course, it is meat and wine for many people. That is their sense of simcha on Shabbat and the holidays. But it's just this idea that we need to tie our su'udot, our meals for Shabbat, with food. Um, and you've made a career out of food. I think you're a, what's the term? The sh- uh, Borden, what's the term? Uh, oh. <laughs> a cordon bleu cook. Cordon bleu chef. Chef, cordon bleu trained. You could say chef. I prefer to say cook. Cook or chef, uh, or chef and, and and so I want to hear a little bit about that and how it relates to Shabbat for you. Okay, whoa, okay, amazing. So you you hit the nail on the head. From a very young age, I was drawn to cooking. My mother used to watch Julia Child. She had a PBS cooking show called The French Chef. And she was teaching North American housewives how to cook French as a, to get away from the fifties where everything was frozen dinners and, and, you know, it was space age and, you know, here's a tray. Wow. Sitting on the TV tray. So anyway, my mother was a big fan of Julia. She did things from scratch and I loved that. So flash forward I had wanted to go to the Conan Lu to study cooking for many, many years. I couldn't. My dear husband, uh, a few years after we were married, said, if you want to go, now's the time. So he sent me. He came over and visited. We had a wonderful time. And I wasn't kosher at that time. I didn't know anything about being kosher. So I learned how to cook Bordeaux Bleu style, whatever you can imagine French cooking would have been. And um, when I came back, And we tried to start our family and we were having challenges doing that. And eventually when I became pregnant with Sarah um, and I met, you know, you can refer to Rav Noah's biography to explain how I really did stumble into this. Thank God. Um, I understood that the cooking and the passion that I felt for cooking uh, was going to get launched into a higher purpose. So goodbye Cordon Bleu, hello koshering our home. So I had to take two tries, actually the third one stuck and koshering our home. It's a process. It's not immediate for me anyway. And um, thank God there were wonderful rabbis and their wives and uh, friends who came to help. And then once the house was koshered, I felt such tremendous gratitude, a chorus of toe, I figured, oh, this is what I'm meant to do with all that cooking nerdiness. Like, 
loving that I'm making homemade ice cream and a hand crank with salt and ice, you know, for our dairy meals. Or back in the day, the sourdough challah. Or back, back in the day, the sushi for Shabbos lunch. So the one moment that I want to convey what it meant several years later was when we were privileged to host Rabbi Machlis in our home for a Shabbat meal with the Pfeffer family and a whole assorted bunch of teenage boys. <laughs> and it was the Parsha, oh boy, you'll know this better than me. I think it was Shmini where we learned the laws of Kashrus. You'll correct me at some point if you mm-hmm. learn otherwise. And I didn't usually stand up to give over Divrei Torah because when you have people like that at your table and it was often like that, it's best to leave it to them. And of course, to my wonderful husband, Stephen. But I had to, I stood up and said, if I hadn't been blessed with these teachers and made the decision to guide myself and my family in this practice, I wouldn't be having this experience right now. I wouldn't be hosting the people who were at my table there. And these people are great people. They're great people. Um, And it became a benefit. So it wasn't like all that hard work to prepare the Shabbos food, hosting the guests. It's not like it wasn't a baking competition like master chef or what's going on now it's you take all the things that you know all your knowledge all your equipment which some of it is very old in my case like (laughs) free free me that could be cushered and the finest ingredients and you use it to elevate and introduce people to this the experience of Shabbos because what better way? Like you said, it's a taste, it's a tongue. And people went away. And boy, didn't we feel great that we were part of that. Feeling very satisfied and wanting more. Because guess what? A lot of them kept coming back, especially the teenage boys. <laughs> and, and that and, was remarkable. And it's, uh, I think there's, I don't know where I heard it, but it's, in order to make this the soul comfortable, the body needs to to feel really good, um, and that's maybe what, what we call soul food. Is there something in the process of making food and seeing people enjoy it um, that feels more than just filling people's tummies? What's the experience of like of making something from scratch and people loving it, especially on the holy day? What's that? What's that like to experience that? Oh my gosh, Noah, that is the best question ever. The the first answer that comes to mind, but I didn't know my boobies. One booby passed away when I was three and the other one passed away shortly afterwards. Yet when I made the recipes, the borscht, the flunkin, the cholent, which was meat heavy because my father was in the meat business. So meat, like you said, um, it put me in touch with people who are very dear to me, especially now that I'm privileged to be a booby, who I didn't know. So that was the first thing. It was a bridge over time, not troubled water, time. And it wasn't so much 
like this might sound funny to say, but I think in this world, maybe you'd agree when people have a skill or a talent, we're told, oh, you got to market it or you have to advertise it or, you know, you got to feel proud of it. And I guess I came into cooking like that, too. I'm sure I did. But as you live in life, and if one of the core values that you come to see and appreciate is anava, humility, then you realize it's not about, like, I get my own private personal joy. And it becomes less about the you and more about the others. And you're right. Once a person feels that connection and feels satisfied, it gives them a freedom and comfort to be able to share their true selves. And I knew when we hit the jackpot was when some guests would just leave the table and hit the couch and they had shove schluffs like you could just see the rest, the manuha, the tranquility. And it's not taking credit for it. It's witnessing it and taking nachas if you had a small part to play in that person achieving that experience. And, and it wasn't the recipes. Like I never really cooked from recipes because rest, I thank God I had like an inner knowledge. And because I did it so often, like the food starts speaking to you, right? It's like, Music, I know, is like that for some people. But for me, it was the food. So when you learn how to put it together in a way that's respectful, not wasteful, not, you know, I really have rough manas for some spouses who were sent out. Well, I need this ingredient and I need that ingredient. I know it's proving their love and it's a solid brick in the in the building of their marriage, but you can make do with so little and you can make do really like that's when Pesach, the Shabbos of Shabbos started to make sense to me um, that you could keep things and elevate them. And it didn't have to be the best or the most fancy. That's, that's not for us. It's what comes to it from the learning and the guests that you choose to honor and what they love. And one other thing, through the years, you start to understand how you touch a person's neshama because it's what they like the most. So this one likes gravlax, this one likes pesto, this one likes caramelized onions. You know, you just, you've got your roster based on the love that comes into your life. And you make that. And it's like, I don't know. I can't say it's like if somebody got a million dollars, I don't know, but it's pretty good. They they love it and feel like you see them and want to connect. It's love. Yeah, it's love. That is, love and Shabbat are sort of the secret ingredients. The the manucha that you're trying to, the context of the food coming out in that state of restfulness and sanctity and the love you have by just choosing the food that you're going to give to those people. It's like, what do they need to digest? What do they need to, sometimes you say, what does someone need to hear? You're thinking, what does someone need to eat? <laughs> it's true. And that, and that's so, that's so nice that I know. And I have very particular foods that I need. I have most of my rituals 
that are very fixed are food. Um, <laughs> like like on Shabbat, the food and the drink is very particular. Like for me, and I find it really interesting where we get into culture and we get into the fact that if you're an Ashkenazi, it's not the same Shabbat if you don't have your kogol or your cholent. It doesn't, sure, it's nice once in a while, maybe have some, some you know, variation <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> but it, it sounds like the food becomes a part of your pleasure and that becomes a way that you can digest the love and sanctity of Shabbat. And depending on where you live in the world, it's different. But what I find is so, two things that strike me about you is number one is that you've taken a, a talent and a love and an innate gift that you had from your whole life and you've made it really special by not only on Shabbat, but by engaging with it on Shabbat with guests and people. Um, and so that's the idea of sanctification of that. But then there's, you mentioned having sushi on Shabbat lunch and there's an idea to have fish, hmm. but the cultural representation that that's for most people, let's say if you're Ashkenazi, and I'm really sorry to be Ashkenormative here. I don't I forget what the Sephardi <laughs> one is called, but Ashkenazi may have gefilte fish. But after a certain while, I stopped caring about gefilte fish. And my Friday night is elevated with, with fish through sushi. I'm eating sushi wow. Friday night. That's my fish appetizer. I don't go to Shabbat without that. So at some point, as I love the sushi so much, you could look that on a superficial level, but no, it's part and parcel of my egg, my joy and pleasure of, of Shabbat is that there is sushi at the table. Um, and so there's uh, food just is intersection of like intention, which we mentioned that empty space. There's the kavana, there's the love, there's the knowing the individual person that's coming to your table and what they need. It sounds like food means so much more than food. And that's why at our holiest events, we need to have food. Yes. Yet we need to have food. Hashem knew what he was doing. You know, he could have made us full. We didn't need to. But, you know, we had, uh, through the years, um, through the generosity of Peter and Eva Friedman, we brought in, they should be well, we invited many different speakers to come. And one of the speakers was Rabbi Jonathan Rietti. And he's, I don't know if you... Oh yeah. Oh well, I like his stuff for memory, memorizing. So he he you can I, I've had a renaissance of memorizing things, learning, where you he's very big into rep repetitive learning and people don't do that anymore. And how you memorize how do you have learn Torah and and memorize, not memorize for memorizing sake, but I used to do that when I was younger, when you used to memorize for school. But uh, yeah, we can learn so much. He's fascinating in that sense. But I know he's also into food because he wrote a book on Maimonides' health exactly. directives. Yeah, yeah, the guidelines. So I remember when Rabbi Rietti came to visit and came more than once, um, we we learned that safer a bit. And in it, it's Maimonides gives over that you're, we, we're meant to chew our food like until it becomes like pap. I can't remember, 20 plus times before we swallow. And I thought, Oh, that's weird. But you only have to have a guest at your table or a loved one who, God forbid, develops digestive issues that often are stress-based. Some of them are mechanical, but very often, and this is according to the doctors and the science that's been explained to me, because some of my loved ones have these issues, um, 
you understand that the tranquility of Shabbos, it's not the food only, it's the ability to relax. And you said digest the food and the love to truly, not, not just to simply digest the unknown quality or the uh, immaterial quality of the love that's infused in the intention. It's the actual food itself. So the Shabbos meal, taking our time, breathing, singing, letting our whole digestive system relax, in my opinion, is health-giving and very tangible, a very tangible benefit. Yeah. Eating in a, in a less rushed pace. Many people are eating and multitasking and, and yeah. this gets to Rav Noach just talking about presence in life and using pleasure. People maybe take the first couple of bites of something and then that's it. And then they're, they're, they're just chewing fast and eating fast, not even paying attention to it. Um, but maybe on Shabbat, we do have to slow that down a lot. You've mentioned a few stories. Uh, I'm wondering before I want to ask you a little bit about just the 10 commandments in general and and your relationship to it. Um, if there's just a story that you feel really encapsulates Shabbat for you, maybe there isn't one, but maybe there is something, the most Shabbat memory you have of, of some kind that you talked about memory at the beginning of your reflection on Shabbat. Is there some moment? I know you have that photo that you look at, include that photo means so much to you. Um, is there a Shabbat memory in your mind that's like a photo for you? Hmm. Maybe it's a con conglomeration of, of I, many... I yeah, I think it's a conglomeration, but it's when I hear your question, the way I understand it is, is I what I mentioned earlier about the framework that Shabbos presents in order to focus and help us reflect on our experiences through the week, through the months, through the years, that it's like without the Shabbos. This wouldn't be occurring. Rabbi Abraham Korsky's Zatzal said, you know, when you are given a recipe to bake the cake, they list the ingredients and some of the equipment that you'll need. But nowhere in the recipe will say you need an oven, right? So it's implied that if you want to bake the cake, you've already got the oven. So that to me, I don't know if that's too vague, but that's how it would answer your question. Shabbos is the oven that allows everything else to get put together. It's the Mekor HaBracha, the source of, of blessing. The source yeah. of blessings. Mekor, say that again for me. In the, in the Lechadodi prayer uh, that we say Friday night, we say, Kihi Mekor HaBracha. It's the, it's the source of all, of all blessing it is Shabbat. And what I find so fascinating, wow. maybe to end off on, on this part of the Shabbat discussion is that you look at all the songs that are in the, the benchers, the, 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 the prayer books that we have for Shabbat. All of them are talking about food. It seems that across all times and ages, the, the people are singing the holy songs about food. And it's kind of weird. We've tied food. I think about benching, and the blessings after food, we say. That's the only time we have a whole system of blessings in Judaism. The only time we are supposed to say them that the only time that's a Torah commandment to say a blessing, other than the blessing on the Torah, which is life, um, is on 
as after eating bread. We have to, for some reason, we, after eating a piece of bread, we have to state all of our values in the world. We, we are thankful for the food. Then we thankful for Jerusalem. We're thankful for this. We want the Mashiach. We're like uh, eating food and then restating all of our cherished values of life. I'm not sure. Maybe there's an idea connected to the fact that when when your children are learning Torah, they're supposed to learn it with eat, eat a little piece of honey on the on the letters. Um, any reactions to that? Just tying. We've talked about tying holiness and 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 to, to food, etc. But just tying even, um, you know, prayer and uh, and learning Torah. Everything kind of seems to be. We we think that food is sort of a, a way to digest it or make it better. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. That's so interesting. A couple of things come to mind. The first one is when I first started, I had to learn how to read Hebrew. So when I first heard, oh my gosh, you say all this after you have a sandwich? I'm not having sandwiches anymore. <laughs> so I, I know that's kind of like, so I've come to appreciate as my reading skills have improved. And as you say, and I got beautiful benches. I know people say, oh, you're not supposed to look at the pictures. I love my venture by Gaddy Pollock with the illustrations. I love it. So that's, that's one thing. It helps me focus in on these things. Every time I have a piece of bread, which is usually once a day that I get to remind myself how blessed and grateful I am individually, what I'm contributing to and hoping for as a member of the Jewish people and it unites me with Jews all over. So it's a complete feeling of actus, brotherhood, sisterhood. But I also want to say that, you know, we had the privilege of um, knowing the Heckers, Harvey and Sheila. And we once went to them to try and um, to ask for their wisdom about an issue that we were having. And Harvey shared that. He asked a question to Stephen and I said, have you ever been hungry? And the way he asked it, like, you have to be honest. You're not just talking about, you know, fasting on um, a a holy day. We're talking about hunger. And we admitted, no, thank God we've never had that experience. And then he shared his experience of hunger as being orphaned losing his father when he was 14 and being the oldest son who had to step up and take responsibility. And my, it, it was, it resonated with some of the stories my father told me too. Like his favorite line was never met a potato. He didn't like, because that's what all they had to eat when he was uh, born in Russia and as a young child. So in my efforts to acquire a chorus of tove, slowing down and realizing that this food in front of me, you know, it could just as easily not be there were I born in another place or time. You just have to turn on the radio to listen to the news, to hear communities are struck with no drinkable water, all the things that are happening in the world. And it hits home when you're sitting in front of something that you've had the pleasure to prepare for yourself with ease and not too much effort. And that's what that's what the food and the brachas, and I'll share a little secret. Um, maybe it's widespread, I don't know. But in leaving Shabbos and building up towards the next, I do a little thing every day. 
And that helps me focus and keep my focus on where I'm aiming towards, what I'm heading towards. With the gifts from the La Shabbos, the tranquility, the contentment, focused on the next. And that's actually a good way to end the Shabbat part of the discussion because Zachor, that we say that the way that there are many mitzvot that are, we're supposed to remember things. We're supposed to remember the day of Harsinai. We're supposed to remember what happened to Miriam. We're supposed to remember Mitzrayim, Egypt. One thing we're supposed to remember is Shabbat, says Zachor. And the way that you do that is what Hillel and Shammai talked, talked about going to the marketplace. Um, and I think it was Shammai who, who um, would find something for Shabbat. And if he found something better, he would take it and have that for that day and then have things for Shabbat. Maybe Hillel was the other one who would save it. I, I forget now. It doesn't matter. But the bottom line is, is that they, the way to Zachor Shabbat, which is a mitzvah all, at all times, is, is to think about Shabbat and to plan, I think, to plan for Shabbat during the week. Um, so that, that's a way to, to constantly have Shabbat with you. Uh, and I think that just to, to ref, finish the reflection on this food dynamic, the Maslow hierarchy of needs that people need to focus on survival. And then once survival feels more stable, they can go to deeper places. Um, and then eventually, hopefully, with enough survival, you can get to transcendence. You can get to thinking about bigger parts of life. There are similar parts of that in Judaism, but I think that as Jews, we, you know, survival is many in many eras has been our modus operandi. We have to survive. We have to. We have to survive. We, you know, we live in major abundance today, and there have been communities that did not have abundance. Um, and in those times, you know, the appreciation of food, I think it's just like you said, just to slow down. We talked, we talked about all this luxury and making it feel so good and it, not all that's important, but wow, just being thankful for food. Um, and it's, it's staring us in the face, being so thankful, maybe on Shabbat, we elevate that and we're even more and more thankful. People used to like save, like just to get that food pleasure on Shabbat, like, you know, not eat all week or not eat as much all week just to be able to save enough so that they had that higher experience um, so that even if they were lower on the hierarchy of needs for in the Maslow sense, one day a week, they felt like Kings one day a week, they had a, a taste of being at God's table and having a nice piece of meat, maybe hopefully, or something like that. But either way, just food and holiness and the rest and Shabbat, it's, it's a huge topic. And I just want to invite you to, to say anything last, any last thoughts about that before we finish. And then I have a couple of questions just about the wave. Okay, so it's as you said, and although in this day and age, like how incredible that the relevance of the Torah speaks to every person who's listening in every age, every stage, every place, it's hard to relate to think about how our boobies and zadies or alter boobies and zadies didn't have the money to acquire through the week. It's hard to relate to that. But I'll tell you one thing that we're starved on, and that's time. And when we allow ourselves that everything gets shut off once those candles are lit, and we can just be, that to me brings to life what you said, you know, whether it's saving up all week or doing a little bit of what we have to, or I don't know what, but it's, the, it's hard, I think, for people nowadays to relate to not having the money. Maybe, maybe I'm being way, you know, 
assumptive and forgive me, but what I see in my world with my peers and in the city in which I live, it's it's the time and the manuha, the tranquility that we really need to save up on to experience on Shabbos. Thank you so much for sharing just a taste of food and, and Shabbat and, and what it means to you. And given that you're a student of Aseret and you, you're, a part, you're a part of this movement and it's cool um, that Rav Shalom had such an impact on both your early connection and also, you know, this, uh, this part of you, this, this Aseret wave, this wave maker. Um, you, you, you differentiated them, maybe you divided them into something called the four C's. I just want to invite you to reflect, just share with us, share with us what the four C's are in relation to the 10 commandments. Cause I think it's a great way for people to see that the 10 commandments are much more than commands. So what are the four C's? Yeah. So I, I have to start this off by saying thank you to Fern Sofer Reach, because she said you need something catchy for people to have a framework to attach the learning to. So she said, when I was, we, we took the course together, she said, ah, the four C's. So the first C is the commandment, how it appears in the Torah. The second C is a central mitzvah, because I think as you mentioned some of your other podcasts, we know that they're not the Ten Commandments, they're the Aserda Debrut. And within each of the Deber, many mitzvahs are contained. So the central mitzvah, the third C is the core value. So what Hazal teach, and really Rav Shalom captured this for us, the plain and simple value, people toss around words, integrity, loyalty, contentment, this is their anchor. And the fourth C is the character trait or the Mita, because as practical, as a practical woman, I appreciate having ways to know that I am, my behavior, my speech, and my thinking are all working on assimilating and integrating, practicing and demonstrating what it means to live the Aserita Debrota's core values. Those are the four C's. And, and it's, a, it's a great case study, just how powerful that is. So the first C for Shabbat is just the commandment. The commandment is clearly to rest on Shabbat. There's the commandment to rest as well as the commandment to guard it. Um, there's positive rest, there's negative rest, there's commandments within that. There's not letting your workers work on, there's a whole, those are the commandments. But then you go to the core mitzvah and the core mitzvah, um, I mean, you, you could say that it's all of the, so the second one is core mitzvah. What's the third one again? So the first one is a commandment. Okay, we second, did that. Yeah, the second one is a central mitzvah. Yes. And the, and the core value, right. Value, yeah. So the, the the central mitzvah, I mean, and there's so many mitzvah that can come from it. I would say all the rest in the Torah, the central mitzvah of uh, of rest in the Torah. The mit, so from the commandment itself that says Shabbat, from there you see every other holiday is called Shabbat. So already in this debear, we have all the holidays of it. We also have all the holidays of the land Sabbath. So that's the Shemitah. And therefore, the extension, the giving of Bikurim, bringing of Bikurim, bringing of you know tithes to the Kohanim, the Levi'im, 
resting the land, the, the Yovel year, which leads to property laws. You already see that this idea of resting on Shabbat has every holiday included, laws of the land. I mean, you're already getting into so much more than just uh, the commandment. And then you have the core value and, you know, you get to make that determination for yourself. Someone might say work-life balance. Someone might say rest. Someone might say holiness. Someone might say family. Someone might say screen-free life. Who knows? There's so many values that you could pick up on. And then the last one? Character traits. Character trait. So that's amazing. You talk about what comes to mind. You can talk about developing manucha, developing a calm spirit. That's a character trait. What about deliberation and speech? You're supposed to be careful what you speak about on Shabbat. You don't want to speak about your business. You want to speak good words. And and, and so then you get into the, maybe you're working on speech during Shabbat. It's amazing. What's so powerful, I think, about reflecting on this way is that the debrot are the debrot. They're written in stone, literally. They're written in stone. They're the only words with the God's finger written in stone. But more than many parts of Judaism, it's not halacha, meaning None of us are saying that we're the post scheme. We don't have to say which, we don't have to have definitive answers. We get to relate to it on a very personal level. We were at Mount Sinai, we heard them. So that's why Rav Sadia Gon, as an example, who is a Goan from the maybe eighth century, he said these mitzvot fit into these debrot. But that's not a science in a certain level. We get to make our own meaning with the Aserah to debrot. And I think that that's what you did by making wave and calling, making up the four C's. As a as a paradigm, there it's just really cool what you can do with uh, with the Aserta Debrot on a personal level. Thank you, Noah. It it is really cool. That's it in a nutshell. But I do have to add to what you're saying because although it's extremely personal and experience based, without the teachings of Chazal, then you know, as a bubi. I'm sure because you referenced your grandparents, you know, you want to make things easy to understand and remember. You want to keep it simple because, right, this is my job, Lador Vador. So I have to be able to go within the boundaries of what came before me and what's going to resonate. So yay for food because everybody wants the recipe. Happy to share all recipes with you, but more so according to what Rav Shalom taught, like for instance, he cites the Rambam that the central mitzvah or second C is that the positive central mitzvah are to make Kiddush and Havdalah when Shabbat enters and leaves and to cease or rest on Shabbos. And the central negative mitzvah is that we're not permitted to do malacha on Shabbos. So within those guidelines and then bringing other teachings to it, fitting within that, it's more like for me where the freedom came was delving into the personal and being so like the analogy, you know, God made the world in six days and then in seventh day he rested. So what was made on the seventh day? Rest was made on the seventh day tranquility, that inside of the room that we spoke about. And um, Rev Shalom used to say, you know, you want to stop a car, right? So how do you stop a car? Most people say, well, you put your foot on the brake. No, you have to take your foot off the gas first. So 
it's breaking things down in this world where we're embarked with so much information, where we think we know, until we realize it's got to come from the heart. It's got to resonate with our spiritual DNA. And that was where the reflection and bringing in other things to help people of a certain age or background relate to these ideas. But it's not like, I wouldn't say like, yes, for sure, anybody can bring a relevant experience to their understanding of Shabbos and the Deber, the fourth Deber. And it may be going back to the first question, like, is that why you think Rev Shalom said that this was the key, the fourth of air is the key to all of them? When you were talking about the holidays and speech and everything you bring. Well, I think uh, you, you, you said it well. Of course, of course, there's structure to all these debrot and their application. Of course, we have so much structure. But it's just more that when we think about Shabbat as a mitzvah, sure, there are rules and regulations and there are boundaries and absolutely. But when we think about it as a deber, we, we we take all of that. We say it is all that and more. And that's where you get to contribute something unique. You're unfortunately, Nancy, and me, unfortunately, like we can't contribute much to the idea from a law standpoint of Shabbat. We're not, we don't know enough. No one's going to ask me and you about, you know, can you do this? Can you do that? We're not creating what they say, laws, but we're engaging in the meaning making of the Debrot and everybody gets to do that. And I think that that's so cool. And that's why the Debrot, it says that they were a Harut, they were engraved. And the sages, as you said, Chazal, they say, don't say that the, the Luchot were engraved Harut, say Cherut, they are freedom. Um, so the, the, the tablets are freedom, are freedom for all of us. And we're so thankful that to hear from you about your relationship with the Ten Commandments. And we appreciate your time and wisdom and insight here. Thank you, Noah. And that's all for today. Thanks for taking the time to listen. And we hope this episode has, in some small way, enriched your understanding of yourself, others, and God as you learn to integrate the Big Ten into your life. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you are listening.